Well, good morning. It is uh, a privilege to be with you guys this morning. Um, I got thinking on the way up here, it's been probably since 2011 that I've been coming up here every once in a while and having the opportunity to share with you. It's been probably almost a year and a half now, I think. Um, so in that time, um, some of you have uh, grown. Some of you have grown, right? Some of you have lost. I still have the same amount as I had when I first started coming up here, uh, but it, it is really great to see you. It's, uh, it, it, it feels like home as soon as I walk in, and I got to tell you, I, I hear great things about what's happening here from Pastor Dave, and uh, I will tell you that I really enjoy my relationship with him. It's a, a great friendship, and so it's a privilege for me to, to be, with you, be with you here this morning. So that video, she ended it with the statement, my life is not what I want it to be. She looked like a pretty well-to-do, middle-class American, pretty nice SUV, nice house. My life is not what I want it to be. I think never before has so many people had so much and yet still want so much more. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about Three reactions that we have. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a geeky person. I, 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 I have a smartphone. I'm on it way too much. I see social media a lot. I engage in social media a lot. But if we're honest with ourselves, when we look at other people's lives on social media, the, the reality is that what we post on social media usually is the very best of the best of what we're doing. In fact, sometimes it's a little exaggerated. It's even better than what it really is. Because we want to make people believe that our life is just really great. And so here's what happens. I, th I think that we have some reactions to when we see people and the things that they have and the things that they're doing. And the first one is this. It's greed. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, we want more. We have this this desire to, to have the very best things. And when you think about what marketers do and, 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 and the way our society operates, you know, version 5.0 isn't good enough. We've got to have version 6.0. We've got to have the latest and greatest and all the newest toys and all the, all the best luxuries that we can possibly have. The fact is that we're all guilty of that to some extent, maybe some of us more than others. Maybe, and I'll be honest with you, this is one of the things that I personally struggle with. But another reaction that we can have to people is this, it can be envy. Now I think typically when we talk about this idea of envy, we, we, we think of it as seeing what someone else has and wanting it. But let me give you a definition of envy that is going to smack you right in the face. And I know this because I still have the bruises, okay? Check out this definition of envy. It is resenting God's goodness in someone else's life and ignoring God's goodness in our own life. Mic drop. Like that... That is, that's painful for me to see and hear. I don't know about you. 
But when we think about, you know, we look at what other people have or what other people are doing and we're jealous, we're envious of it. What we're literally doing is are shaking our fists at God saying, why are you blessing them and you are not blessing me like you're blessing them? The third thing that we can have is FOMO. Are you familiar with this? Hashtag FOMO. See, FOMO is something that marketers use very powerfully today to convince us that we need to buy something. See, FOMO is the fear of missing out. It, 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 and it plays on us. It, it's, a, it's an emotional reaction that we have when we see something else, someone else doing really cool things, and we're like, oh man, I wish I could have gone and done that. Or, or there's something that's available, a new, a new item, a new, a new purchase. Everybody's getting it. Oh man, I'm missing out. Well, this morning, my challenge, both to myself and to you, is this. We want no more FOMO, all right? No more fear of missing out. No more FOMO. We want to be able to have a biblical response to the, the blessings that God gives us and to others. You know, the American Association of Alternative Medicine, they wanted to test the effectiveness of marijuana on reducing the symptoms of FOMO. And so here's, here's, here's what happened. So first of all, several of them reported they had no more FOMO anxiety, right? Everything is cool, man. Right? Three of the participants fell into a deep paranoia, which, quote, distracted them from the original fear of missing out. I'm not sure paranoia was the right, right response. And one of the participants actually refused to participate. He's like, no, man, I only vape. Right? So here's, here's a solution that these alternative medicine people would want us to try to get over our fear of missing out to overcome envy and greed. Um, how about if we look at a more biblical solution to it this morning? All right, so if you would, join me in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And this morning I'll be reading from the ESV. And when you look at the book of Philippians, this kind of summarizes what you would see as you, as you read through the book of Philippians. And I would encourage you this week to read through the book of Philippians in one sitting. Read it as it was intended. The, the Apostle Paul wrote it to the church in Philippi as a letter, and it was intended to be read all at one time. And so read through the whole book. And as you, as you go through the book, you'll see that, that there's some challenges in the book of Philippians. The, the fact that we are to be humble in a, in a world of selfishness, that we are to find joy in a world of suffering. And in this morning, the challenge is to find contentment in a world of greed. And I think as you put those things together and you see the progress in the book of Philippians, there's a, there's a fascinating acronym, acronym that's very easy to remember. It's joy. Jesus first, others second, than you. Jesus, others, you. 
So how, how is joy going to be demonstrated in your life? Let's look at Philippians chapter 4. And if you would, I, I, I would like to have you stand as I read through God's word this morning. We, we stand to honor the president. We stand to honor a bride. Let's stand to honor the reading of God's word, if you would, this morning. So in Philippians chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 8 through 19. It says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is God's word. Hear it, believe it, live it. Thank you. You may be seated. So I think if we jump back to verse 11, we see the Apostle Paul saying to the Philippians, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And in verse 12, he, he said it again. He's like, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance as well as need. I have learned to be content. You see, it is is not a disposition, disposition, it's not an emotion. It is a decision, and it is something that we learn over time. And I think as we go through this passage, we can see that there are, there are three areas of discontentment that the Apostle Paul challenges us on. And the first one is pretty obvious. The first one is financial. And now here you may, you know, you may have heard this statement before, the love of money is the root of all evil, right? That's biblical. The problem is that sometimes we want to leave out the love part and we just say money is the root of all evil. And money is not the issue. Money is not the evil part. It's our attitude and our use of it. It is our stewardship of it and how we view it that can become very evil. And see, here's the challenge. God created man in his own image. And yet, we are now trying to return the favor. 
And we try to create God in our image. We, we try to create a middle-class American Jesus that kind of gives us all the good things in life that we want and that that's what the Christian life is supposed to be about. That somehow our family and our finances are the most important things that we have. And we find our security in that. You know, one of my privileges of, of working at Davis College for a number of years is pouring into young men that were going out into ministry and, that, and now uh, seeing them and how God has blessed them and, and challenged them and the opportunities that God's presented to them. And I want to share a quote to you from one of the young men that I had a, a chance to, to get to know well and I actually did his premarital counseling. And now he pastors at a church out in Phoenix, Arizona. And this is a young man that, I mean, he is a sharp guy. He probably, in Phoenix, Arizona, probably could be working for a large corporation and making six figures. But he's made a decision to dedicate his life to ministry. And here's what, here's what Nate Benner tweeted a few months ago. He said this, Satan's most subversive strategy is to make you successful so that you forget that you need Jesus. Now, some of you guys maybe remember my, my message the last time I was here, and I shared with you very personally uh, what my story was. I grew up on, on welfare. I grew up in a single-parent household. Um, I started working kind of off the books when I was 12 years old. I, I started working officially at the day of my birthday when I was 16 and could get papers. Um, you know, I, I, growing up, uh, I, I despised going to the grocery store with food stamps. And that was back in the day when it was really, really pieces of paper. It was stamps. And, 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 and those were things that was a challenge to me as growing up, wrestling with that. My perception was off. But then here's something that happened. See, I got married. And, and frankly, my wife kind of grew up in a very uh, kind of similar economic status. She came from a large family and, you know, very rural. And, and so they, they, you know, they had enough, but, but not a lot. And so then we got married and we were dinks. You know what dinks are? Dual income, no kids, right? So all of a sudden we had money. But guess what happens when you have money? You want more money. And, and, and so we became very focused on those things to, to, to an extent where it was, I will admit, it was a God in our lives. We, we had made that American dream something that was so important to us. But I can look back now and I can see what the Apostle Paul is saying and I can identify him with him when he says in verses 11 and 12, he says things like, I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to go to bed hungry, but I also know what it's like to be living in plenty. I could say my personal experience is this. I've driven a Dodge Omni, if you remember those. If you have one of those still, I'm really sorry. I've driven a Dodge Omni. I've driven a Mercedes. I've gone hungry, and I've eaten at some amazing buffets. But that, 
But frankly, that's just an Americanized version. How about a global version? How about, how about what it's like for people in other countries? They, their version might be something like this. I've walked barefoot for years, or I've worn a new pair of Nikes that were donated to me. Or, or I've lived off of dirty water and rice for years. Or I've experienced the free Thanksgiving dinner at a soup kitchen. You see, it's, it's perspective. And, and when we look at verse 19, it really, it helps us to recognize that sometimes we, we claim this verse in our, in our thinking of our culture and our society and we confuse the word need with want. And the promise is in verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Unfortunately, there are charlatans, there are preachers that are on TV and in other venues that will try to tell us that we need to claim this and that's how we get that Mercedes and that's how we get the nice things in life. But that's not what this verse is saying. It's saying it is our need and sometimes we confuse our need with our greed, our need with our wants, our need with desires. You know, if you want to get a perspective on what real need is, I would encourage you to have some really life changing experiences, things that will realign your thinking. For instance, spending time with the local needy, going, going to places where people in our community, in our area, really do have serious need. Or, or how about studying global poverty, looking and seeing what, what life is like in other areas of the world, or even better yet, going on a missions trip and seeing it for yourself. I can tell you that, that I've been on several missions trips. I've, I've interacted with hundreds of people that have gone on missions trips, and every single one of them says the same thing in one way or another. They say it was life-changing. I'd never seen poverty before. I've, ne I've never realized how good I have it. My very first missions trip, I went to the Dominican Republic, and, and, and I thought I was seeing poverty, but then one day we went out and worked in this village, and, and this village were Haitians, and, and the, the Dominicans and the Haitians don't like each other. They live in the same island. They, they split the island, but Haitians that end up in the Dominican side, they're treated as third-class citizens. They, they literally live in like tent villages with no running water and, and no education. That was a life-changing event for me. See, I saw real poverty. And so our, our perspective needs to be changed at times. See, the paradox of our time and age is that we buy more and we enjoy it less. We have more conveniences, but yet we have less time. We have more education, but yet seemingly we have less common sense. That is the paradox of our time. You see, we have multiplied our possessions, but unfortunately, we have reduced our values. Stephen Furtnick put it this way. He said, pursuing the American dream is like drinking ocean water all of your life. 
it will never satisfy your thirst. You see, I think sometimes we fall into the trap of saying, I will be content when, dot, dot, dot. Where I think our response needs to be, I'm good. When they try to convince you that you need the, the newest TV, no, I'm good. Uh, when you, they try to tell you you need the, the nicest car, no, I'm good. I'm content. So financial, obviously, is, is, is a, a major thing that, that the Apostle Paul is challenging us on. But there's another thing here that, that he challenges us on, and it's this. It's, it's our relational discontent. You see, we, some of us live in a driven world that, that if you achieve certain things, that, that life will be good. That somehow I have to do something of value or importance in order for me to be a person of value. And unfortunately, with that thinking, your joy is wrapped up in what others say about you. And the fact is, if some of us are, are honest with ourselves, we are not content with our relationships. We want more friends, or better friends, or different friends. She wants a husband. He wants a wife. Maybe he wants a different wife. She wants a different husband. Right? We're not content with our relationships. But look at, look at Paul's example when he talked about his contentment with relationships. In verse, in verse 10, he talks about the fact, he said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern, you have revived your concern for me. You know, that, that implies that there was a time and period there that they weren't concerned for him. But yet, the Apostle Paul rejoices in that. He, he doesn't hold a grudge against them. And, he, and he, look, he says it again in verse 15. He says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. You see, he is rejoicing in, in what God's provision uh, to him through the Philippians but he's not, you don't, you don't hear him complaining about the other people, right? He is content. And in verse 16, he, he mentions that they've helped him on multiple occasions. You think, as you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you can see that he was content with his friendships or without friendship. He was content receiving help and getting support. He was content when there was no support and no help coming. He was content when others were concerned for him. He was content when others had forgotten him. You see, he was content with his relationships. And I think the challenge for us today is, is recognizing that we, we're, we're in this journey together. Scripture often talks about the King James, I love the word, it says forbearing. You know, that word literally means putting up with one another. And the fact is, there are people that you may need to be putting up with. But guess what? 
there are people that are putting up with you. There are people that are putting up with me. But see, that, that is that journey together. And if we're content in our relationships, and that God has placed not only things in our life, but people in our life at specific times and places for specific purposes. And yet, if we shun those people, if we don't want to really uh, engage in, in, in develop those relationships, we're literally doing the same thing as that, that definition of envy. We're, we're shaking our fist at God saying, the friends you've given me just aren't good enough, God. And so we can be discontent with our finances, we can be discontent with our relationships, and we can be discontent with our circumstances. But as we, as we look at the Apostle Paul and his description, you know, circumstances, it, we, we, we need to recognize that it is not my situation that dictates my satisfaction. Again, like we talked about earlier, it is not a disposition. It's not an emotion. It is a decision. Contentment is a decision. Look at his, his focus in verse 8. He tells us that we, we should be focusing on the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. But let me give you an example of, of what Paul's circumstances are. As we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we recognize that the Apostle Paul isn't really sharing all of his circumstances with them. But here's an example of what the Apostle Paul's circumstances were like. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. 40 lashes was considered to be like the ultimate punishment other than death. And so five times he's received 39 lashes, 39 whips. Three times I was beaten with, rod, with rods. Once I was stoned, and not the marijuana thing like earlier. We're talking about like they threw rocks at him, right? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from river, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. There's a whole lot of danger in there, right? But listen, there's more. He says, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, the Apostle Paul says, when he's talking about contentment in circumstances, those are the circumstances that he's referring to. And so when we want to look at our circumstances, how, how, does, how does the things that we whine and complain about stack up compared to the Apostle Paul? But see, the Apostle Paul doesn't leave us there. See, the Apostle Paul gives us the secret. He says, I have learned the secret of being content. And so this morning, let's look at three things that the Apostle Paul says about this. But as, as we do that, I want to I point out a verse here that really gets um, really taken out of context. But I think if we understand this verse within the context, content, we'll, we'll, we'll see that it has a really deeper, powerful meaning. 
And it is part of the secret of being content. Maybe you've seen this verse before. Maybe you've, you've seen famous athletes put this verse on themselves. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And maybe you've seen famous athletes like John Jones and others that have it tattooed or, or on their uniforms or on their, on their glove or on their helmet or whatever. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's the fascinating thing about this verse is it's on every locker room of every Christian athletic organization around the country, right? Just You can go to any Christian high school and any Christian college, uh, even, even some other places. You'll see this verse up in the exercise room or in the weight room. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. And, and sometimes it's claimed and quoted as if that means that because you're a Christian, you're going to win. Well, the problem is this. What if the other team is a Christian too? You know, what if the, you know, you're the best player on your team and you're a Christian, but what if the best player on the other team is a Christian too? Right? We claim this verse as if, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you, and, and you can imagine, maybe you've even done this yourself. You're like in the exercise room and, you, you know, you're, you're, you're down there, you're doing some curls. And, and, you know, you get, you know, 30 and 1, 49, 76. You got to be creative when you're counting exercises, right? And then you're like, you're struggling like, oh, yeah, yeah. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 98, 99, 100, 101. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? So I don't know about you, but I... I I joke around with my church about different Bible translations. And so I, I, I really like the ESV. I joke around with them that I call it the especially sanctified version. And uh, we, our chair Bibles are the NIV, and I like to call that the non-inspired version. But in this case, it, it's fascinating um, to see how the NIV actually captures this verse. Because I think there are some different translation philosophies, if you ever have a chance to study this. Uh, translations like the, the King James Version, the New American Standard Version, the ESV tend to be word-by-word -word translations. But there are other translations, and the NIV is one of them, that tend to be a phrase-by-phrase -phrase translation. And in this case, the NIV, because of that translation approach, really captures the true meaning of this verse within its context. Because, see, the, the verse is saying, I can do all this through Christ, all this through him who gives me strength. And as you look at the context, it's talking about, I can do contentment. I can, I can do all this stuff about being content in my life through Christ. You see, contentment is not just an attitude where we can change our thinking and go, all right. I'm going to really try harder at this, and I'm going to get better at being content. The reality is the only way that we can live in true contentment, the way the Apostle Paul describes it, is through Christ Jesus and having our contentment in him. But Paul goes on, he gives us some other secrets of contentment. He tells us that, that we need to recognize that, that there is sufficiency in, in Jesus Christ. He says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. 
He's talking about a, a thorn in the flesh that he had. And, and, and we can only speculate. Maybe it was his, his vision. Uh, there was other things that people have speculated on. But, but he describes this process of where he pleads with God. Says, please take away this from me. And God's response is, my grace is, say that yellow word with me, sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness or in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am, say that word with me, content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the implication is, I am strong through Christ. Apostle Paul gives us three quick things here. He points out to us this idea that contentment is not in something or some things. It is in someone. And contentment is not in our junk. It is in Jesus. Have you ever noticed that the things that that you bought a few years ago and you were so excited about, and now they're up in the attic. Right? Things that, the things that were so precious to us, now they're junk. And the reality in the grand scheme of things is that it's all junk. And so contentment is found in Jesus. And he gives us three examples of how this plays out in our lives. The first one is this, is that we can have confidence in God's providence. In verses 6 and 7, he talks about that don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, at the end, he talks about what you've seen and learned. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Verses 18 and 19. He says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, when we are discontent, we are literally shaking our hands at God saying, I'm not happy with your plan. I'm not happy with your provisions for me. What you've given me is not good enough, God. But if we recognize that God is in control, we can be content. If we have confidence in God's providence, you know, oftentimes God doesn't give, what, give us what we ask for, and that's a good thing because he has something even better for us in store. But we have to be confident in what God is doing. I think the second thing that we see here is compassion for others' needs. Here's the Apostle Paul. He has needs, but yet his focus is on other people. The, the whole context of this letter is he's writing back to this church that he planted in Philippi and his concern for them. And in verse 17, he talks about the fact that he's not desiring, the seek, he's not desiring for himself, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He, he's concerned about their standing, and the benefit of giving for them. You know, the interesting thing is that Paul is writing this from a prison cell in Rome. And he's talking to them not about his needs, but he's talking to them about 
their needs. If, you ever need, if we ever need to realign our thinking and, and to get our minds off of our desires and our wants, our greed and our envy, start to have compassion for other people's needs. It very quickly takes your mind off of your own wants. And then the last thing I think we see here is this. Is that we need to have a consistent attitude of thanks. Have you ever noticed that it's really hard? I mean, it's almost impossible to be thankful and complaining at the same time. Isn't that true? And so when you catch yourself complaining, when you catch yourself thinking about, oh man, I wish I had this, or I wish I could be doing that, or I wish God would give me this, or I wish I had a better friends, I wish I had this circumstance, take a step back and be thankful for what you do have. See, that consistent attitude of thanks, not just once a year, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, but a daily thing of being thankful for what God is doing in our lives. Not focusing on what God is doing and blessing other people, but how is God blessing me? Because see, if we have that consistent attitude of thanks, we have compassion for others, we have confidence in what God's doing. Paul is saying to us, that's the secret of success. We need to, comp- we need to kill the comparisons We need to cultivate a a culture of gratitude. And so as as you look at this book of Philippians, and again, I would encourage you to read through the entire book sometime this week. It's not going to take you that long. It's four short chapters. As you look at that, you're going to see a couple of words that that appear over and over again. In fact, in the Greek, it, it literally is the same exact word. But in our English language, you're going to see the word joy, And you're going to see the word rejoice. And you're going to see it at least, I think, 16 times. You see, contentment is the ability to have joy and to celebrate God's goodness in a culture full of suffering, selfishness, and greed. Choosing to be content. And so this morning, I want to encourage you that as we have this attitude of thanks, I, want to, I would just want to close with this video that just, to me, is a really powerful reminder of the fact that, that God takes our difficult situations and turns them into very positive things. That we should have an attitude of thanks, not just for Thanksgiving, but every single day. Check out this video.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your goodness to us. We want to have an attitude of gratitude, even when uh, things are hard, even when things don't unfold the way we hope they would. Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We celebrate it this uh, Thanksgiving season, and we just ask that it wouldn't be something that just hangs in the air for a few days, but it would just hang in our heart for our lifetime. We thank you again for your goodness to us. We ask all of this in your name.